Well, if you would, look with me in Philippians 3. Uh, We're only going to be going through verse 20a today because of the content. We'll come back and revisit that next week. But in verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come as pilgrims. And as the psalmist says, blessed is the man whose heart is set on the pilgrimage. This is not our home. We are a colony. We are citizens of another city, another country. And then we pray today that your grace would teach us, your spirit would teach us more of what that means and that it would have transformative effects in our lives and our relationships and in our witness. We pray for the preacher that your spirit would edit my plans and purposes to fit what you want to do today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 410... When Augustine was in his late 50s, the city of Rome was ransacked by an army that had marched down into Italy from the barbarian north. Now these invaders plundered the city, a city that had stood for a thousand years. Now to put that in perspective, we just celebrated our 242nd birthday as a country. Rome had stood in all of its glory for a thousand years. This had never happened and people were stunned. They they were fearful. They were living in anxiety. The theologian and historian Jerome, who was living at the time, wrote this. If Rome can perish, what can be safe? In fact, that's how Augustine saw it as well. And that was behind his magnum opus, his great work, the city of God. The city of God took him 15 years to write. He began it in 410 and he completed it in 426 in his early 70s. It's a very important book. And one of the reasons this book is so important is that it's a defense of Christianity. He says, to those who prefer their own gods to the founder of the city of God. Now, he gets that language of the city of God from Scripture. 
For instance, there were three particular texts he drew from. Psalm 87, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, unlike Rome. Now, his book is about this city, the city of God. Yet, to depict the city, Augustine also speaks about another city. The city of man, the city of this world. He called it the city of man. A city that exercises dominion over the hearts of human beings. And according to Augustine, uh, this history of the human race can essentially be divided into these two groups. One group who make up the city of God and the other group who make up the city of man. And here's what he writes. These are two cities formed by two loves. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes when we think about the Christian faith, we just think about this simple faith that's just an intellectual faith. But saving faith always brings with it faith's best friend, love. And so these two cities are formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self Even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. And so the city of man was, for Augustine, depicted by Rome. Rome was stunning. It was so real. And so seemingly permanent and impenetrable. And yet it was destined for destruction. The city of God oftentimes looks very weak and unimpressive. But it's destined for glory. It will endure forever. Our text today lays out two examples representing each one of these cities. Now, I want you to keep in mind, what is the theme verse of Philippians? It's Philippians 1, verse 27. That's driving the entire letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side For the faith of the gospel. That is the purpose of the church. He's given us the ultimate example in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the cruciform life. Christ is the ultimate example. But we see in our text today that we also need examples within the church. And the first thing he says here is to be imitators of the citizens 
of the heavenly city, to use and borrow Augustine's terminology. Look with me in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. So he's writing to Christians. Brothers does not mean just the men. That's the language of adoption. We are in union with the elder brother, which means we have the inheritance rights of the elder brother. So he's writing to the women as well, but he's writing to believers. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, for the second time in three verses, Paul calls believers to follow his example. We saw this remarkable language in the last couple of passages here in Philippians where he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, verse 9, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, verse 12. I press on to make it, that is the righteousness that's been credited, imputed to me, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's easy for us to say, in our minds, that's an apostle. That's good for him, and I'm glad that my apostles are that committed. But I'm just a normal Christian. But in verse 15, as we saw last week, he says, those who are mature will think this way. If you are a mature believer, if you are a believer who's growing in grace you will progressively come to think this way. In other words, we use this language of radical today that's often seen in the Christian bookstores. There's nothing radical about it. It's normal. This is normal Christianity. This is the normal Christian walk. And so in verse 15, he says, if you're mature... If you're growing in spiritual maturity, it will evidence itself in that you're growing to approach the Christian life like I do, as Paul says. And then in verse 17, he says, join in imitating me. And yet at the same time, Paul says, I, as an apostle, should not be the only example. He says, keep your eyes as well on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. The need to have other mature believers whose lives are worthy of imitation is very Pauline. Prayerfully, in every church, virtually every generation, excluding perhaps our infants... But in every church, every generation will have represented godly people whose lives are worthy of imitation. So that they could say humbly, imitate me as I imitate 
the Apostle Paul, who imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. But in a healthy church, I believe this calling is uniquely given to the older generation. It's everyone's calling, but I believe that the older generation has this as its unique calling. Because in a healthy church, you have older believers who've been walking with Christ for decades. Who've been immersing themselves in the word of God for decades. They have grown in grace and wisdom for decades. When you describe them, you describe them this way. They are loving. They are joyful. They're peaceful. They're patient. They're kind. All the fruit of the Spirit. And in a healthy church, the godliest generation is the older generation. Because when an older generation is godly and has grown in grace and wisdom, by definition, they're giving their faith away to the younger generations. There's an umbrella effect. God has ordained the principle of imitation as a means of growth and development. There are couples who come in to our churches and they didn't have godly fathers and godly mothers. But there are godly older saints that they can look to and say, that is what a Christian marriage looks like. I will imitate them. There are people who come into churches who have been raised in unhealthy environments, unhealthy churches, filled with division, animosity, church splits. And they see men and women of peace, men and women of unity and maturity. And they go, that's what a church member should look like. It's the principle of imitation. Last Tuesday, I, we went down to Alabama this week to visit my parents. Last Tuesday, I was in the weight room with my dad. And he said, I want you to meet somebody. So he walked me across the weight room and introduced me to a man named Roger Wilson. I knew immediately who he was. I've heard his name my entire life. I'd never met him. Roger Wilson, almost 50 years ago, introduced my dad to weightlifting. He modeled it. After work, they worked together. He would work out, and my dad watched him. And my dad became a weightlifter, who in turn introduced weightlifting to me by modeling it. And I, in turn, have introduced it to my children's chagrin to them. Imitation has a multi-generational impact. And that applies certainly in the spiritual realm. Paul understands that he can't call others to respond to his teaching unless they see it embodied in his own life and walk. 
And that's true for all of us. It's generally true that an unbeliever, when he or she hears the word taught, it is an abstract idea until they see it conceptualized. Until they see it embodied in the life of the believer. The unbeliever needs to see the power of the gospel lived out in the redeemed. And that's one of the reasons it's so crucial that a church be characterized by love and kindness and unity. That we teach unbelievers how to disagree because we will disagree with one another. But we teach them how to disagree in the power of the Spirit. Not as five-year-old children who didn't get their way. It's the power of, of imitation. And don't miss the impact that imitation would have had on the Apostle Paul. It's not explicitly said, but it's inferred in the, in, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, you know that story, many of you. Stephen is preaching the gospel to the Jews. And he is showing them how the history of Israel and the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they arrest him. And in Acts chapter 7, it says, When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They were so mad, they were gritting their teeth. There's nothing like the gospel that sets unbelievers off. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you aren't familiar with this man... He's the one who would later write the book of Philippians. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where did he learn that? From his Christ. As he was dying on the cross, Luke 23, 46. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where did he learn that? From his Christ as he was dying on the cross. Luke 23, 41 or 34. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. What is chapter 8 about? Paul's conversion. It didn't happen out of the blue. Yes, Jesus came to him. Jesus revealed himself to, to Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul was saved when Christ revealed himself to him. But Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to read between the lines. He saw, this man Saul saw in Stephen, a man who was willing to die, to suffer. 
for his faith. And he wants us to recognize that that happens just before Paul's conversion. It's the power of imitation. Now, how do we imitate Paul? Paul isn't here. He's not going to walk through those doors. We imitate Paul by immersing ourselves in his letters. Indeed, we have the call to imitate all of the biblical writers by immersing ourselves in their writings. If you aren't reading your Bible, this is impossible. Because as we read the Bible, the Spirit begins to impress on us the burden of these writers. We begin to understand more and more what is important and what isn't important. We begin to learn about what is eternal and what is temporal and what will not matter in the end. And progressively, the Spirit of Christ will impress these burdens on us so that they become our burdens. For instance, last week we read just just one example. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How do I imitate Paul? As I read that, I first of all recognize Christ Jesus has made me his own. Have I gotten over that? Have I gotten over that grace? How do I know I've gotten over that grace? Because I'm not pressing on. And so as I read that, I, I have a time of confession and repentance. Lord, I confess that I'm not pressing on. I'm just kind of drifting. I've gotten bored in my walk. And it evidences itself in so many ways. I get frustrated with people. I get anxious and fearful. I slander. I gossip. I'm discontented. I'm jealous. Lord, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the forgiveness I have in Christ who made me his own. But now, Lord, I pray that I can walk in light of that forgiveness. I pray that I could walk in light of that gospel, in the power of that gospel. And I pray by your spirit that I would progressively be more and more like Paul to press on because Christ has made me his own. That's how we imitate the Apostle Paul. But you can't do it with a closed book. Indeed, the Christian life is a dynamic life. It's not static. You're either developing or you're drifting. And the examples that we surround ourselves with play a major role. Whether positive, like Paul. Are negative. Indeed, we are to be imitators of the citizens of the heavenly city, but we are to beware of the citizens of the earthly city. Look with me in verse 18. Now he said, verse 17, be imitators of me and those who follow our example. For, don't miss that, he's connecting it. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, this word for 
tells us he's connecting the thoughts. In other words, imitate me and imitate those who walk according to our example because in so doing, you will protect yourself against these anti-cross people. We don't know exactly who Paul's referring to here. I tend to think it's the Judaizers who were teaching that Christ is not enough. You've got to become Jewish. You've got to keep the law. You've got to, you have to circumcise yourself and keep the food laws and so forth. It's not important to know who this is referring to specifically. The text is broad enough to, to apply to any situation. And that's the wisdom of the Spirit here. In fact, we see there are five characteristics of these people that characterize every unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever here today, we're not picking on you because we were unbelievers at one time as well. And in fact, they describe us as believers when we're not walking in light of the gospel. The first characteristic is they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's one of the most horrific phrases in all the scripture. To be an enemy of the cross of Christ. Now, history has produced many overt enemies of the cross. But those people are obvious. He's speaking here of those who are in some way identified with Christianity. People in the church. But the the cross doesn't really inform their character, their conduct, their commitments, their confession, their creed. The cross doesn't inform any of that. The reality is there are many enemies of the cross who do not see themselves as enemies. But when we don't want to be bothered or inconvenienced by the demands of the cross, we make ourselves an enemy of the cross. Or when we center on issues that are peripheral to the gospel, like we're seeing oftentimes today in the social justice movement, I think we become subtle enemies to the cross because the cross becomes peripheral to changing structures rather than changing hearts. If we can't say with our hearts, but far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross, we make ourselves a subtle enemy of the cross. Or, this is more explicit, there are Christians who deny what really happened on the cross. There are professing Christians who claim that when Christ was on the cross, he did not take God's judgment, God's wrath. When the scripture clearly teaches that's exactly what he did. He suffered for sins once for all. He propitiated the wrath of God for sinners. 
And the consequences are enormous. In fact, they're eternal. Notice, this is the second description. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. It's what Paul describes as the second death. The lake of fire. It's hell. For those who make themselves enemies of the cross. Which is an eternal conscious torment. Now why is it eternal? First of all, because the sin is against a God who is infinite in his perfections. But secondly, when you go to hell, you don't get born again in hell. You continue to sin. Your heart isn't changed in hell. In fact, it gets even more sinful because now the restraining common grace that is very clear on everyone is no longer there. Thirdly, their God is their belly. Nominal Christianity arises. Now again, he's speaking here about people in the church. Nominal Christianity arises when the cross is dumbed down and made uncostly. These are people that are driven by their, their sinister desires. If it feels right, do it. No repentance. No subjection of those desires to the, to the word. And don't miss this. This is a universal principle of idolatry. They need to feed their gods in order to keep them alive. That's what the language is like. Their God is their belly. You've got to feed them. Feed the gods in order to keep them alive. And they do. And that raises a crucial question as we think about this. What, what future is in the object of your greatest love? All of us have a supreme love. And whatever we love most, we are most committed to. Our time, our attention, and our resources. What is the future of your greatest love? Paul doesn't specify what their actions are here. Because if he did, we might say, well, that doesn't apply to us. So it's broad enough to apply to any situation. And so he, I think, wisely goes after the root issue here. They are pandering to themselves. It's epidemic today. Now, when our God is our belly, our idols will numb us over time. It's like ice. Ice desensitizes us, doesn't it? Eventually, we will begin to exalt things which should not be exalted. There's the fourth description. They glory in their shame. This is Isaiah 5, verse 20. Those who call darkness light. And those who call light darkness. It's Jeremiah 6. They have forgotten how to blush. 
Sin now looks normal. Righteousness looks strange. Pornography looks normal to many people today. And it's the greatest of perversion. When it becomes your norm, this is you. And it is a dangerous place to be. Of course, we know that's descriptive of the culture at large. This week I read an article about the celebrity comedian Chelsea Handler. Who was defending her two abortions when she had as a teenager. Now, if you've had an abortion, that's the glory of the gospel. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ died on the cross for people who've had abortions. That's the good news of the gospel. But for Chelsea, she's glorying in her abortions. In fact, she said, my only regret is getting pregnant. But these are the words that really caught my eye. I never think, God, I wish I'd had that baby. Now, as shocking as this is, it should not surprise us coming from a pagan. But Paul is describing people within the church. That's what's so troubling here. And that's why he is speaking with tears. Here's the question. What entertained you? What makes you laugh? Who are you drawn to? What are your habits? Paul is seeking to wake us up. Are you glorying in your shame? Has that become your normal? And then fifthly, their minds are set on earthly things. When you dismiss the cross, the supreme expression of God's investment in us, and that is the cross. The cross is the supreme expression of God's love and his investment in us. But when that becomes secondary to your life, you will begin to question God's provision for you. You'll begin to believe he's holding out on you. He does not have your best interest at heart. That's why we struggle with anxiety. That's why we struggle with fear. We have this mindset that God is holding out. And at that moment, it, 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 it becomes apparent we're not walking in the gospel. That includes me. Which means he needs to be supplemented. God needs to be supplemented because he's not enough. He's holding out. What does that remind us of? It's the garden, right? Serpent comes to the first parents and he says, You need to eat that fruit from that tree in order to be happy. Because God's not going to make you happy. And they believe that. And again, Paul isn't talking about outright pagans here. He's in tears because he's speaking about professing believers. 
They are all wrapped up in the here and now. What they want most in life is here. I love these words from Thomas Watson, the Puritan. The world is but a great inn, hotel, where we are to stay a night or two and then be gone. What madness is it? So to set our hearts upon our inn and forget our home. And unfortunately, there are pulpits that pander to this. Giving you principles on how to improve your sin-stained life without the gospel. And there are Christian book distributors. Publishing houses that do the same. Do you know that the large percentage of books on the bestseller list? I'm not talking about the New York Times bestseller list. I'm talking about the Christian bestseller list. Are giving you this message. God can give you what you want better than anyone else can. In other words, you use God to get the world. And that is pagan religion. In that religion, God is not the end. He's the means. You use him. In pagan religion, we obey God because he's useful. In Christianity, we obey God because he's beautiful. He's glorious. And because he is our Destination, our eternal residence. Notice in verse 20. Unlike this approach to life, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we're going to come back to this next week. But the term citizenship is related, has the same root as the word we see in chapter 1, verse 27. You never get past chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That verb there is the same root we have here, the the noun, citizenship. Now, when you consider the historical context of this word, for this language, it becomes apparent how genius this metaphor is. In the first century, the word, the term citizenship, referred to a colony. Of non-citizens living in a foreign country. Philippi, we saw this when we looked in chapter 1 verse 27, had become a Roman colony. Now Philippi is in Greece. Alright? It's not in Rome. It's in Greece. When John and Daniel and I went to Thessalonica, we, we rode right past Philippi. We didn't go there, but we rode right past it. But Philippi, in the previous century, had become a Roman colony. It was governed by Roman law. The citizens wore Roman garbs, clothing. Uh, They used Latin in their official documents. And even the architecture was Romanesque. And most importantly, they had the benefit 
and the protections of being Roman citizens. And in Greek thought, a citizen would submit all of his or her interest to that of the city, of the nation, of Rome. Indeed, Roman colonies were to be miniatures of Rome, reflecting the glory of Rome and its culture. So to live in Philippi, but to be a citizen of Rome, living the Roman life while absent from its capital, what better illustration of the Christian life? This is not our home. We are a colony. It's what Paul is saying. Paul is reminding us that even though they, in this particular case, live in a Roman colony in Philippi, their real citizenship is in another place. And for us as Christians in the United States, it is... Hard to be too thankful for where we live. We are so blessed to be citizens here in the United States. So much to be grateful for, but we should not see ourselves first as citizens of the United States or anywhere else. Our drummer is from Canada. And he certainly shouldn't see himself. Just kidding with Scott. We are citizens of another country. Paul is reminding the Philippians of that. He is reminding us of that. We are in Christ. That is our location. We have been raised up with Christ. And we have been seated with him in the heavenly places where our citizenship is. Our citizenship is in a different city, a different country, a different world. And that's why, as much as we love the United States, as much as we love our form of government, a republic, as much as we love our military, and we do, as much as we love the men and women who have laid down their lives so that we might have these freedoms as much as we love the American flag. When we gather to worship, we do not gather as the United States. We gather as citizens of another country. Every tribe and tongue as one colony. One colony. The Christian commonwealth has a different constitution. Different laws. And Christians are to exemplify the values of that heavenly city. Just as the Roman cities, the Roman colonies were to demonstrate the glory of Rome in a foreign land. And I want us to close... In a text that shows us this so clearly. Hebrews chapter 13. It's on the board. The writer of Hebrews. 
says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What does that mean? He was cut off. He was cut off from the people of God, from the presence of God outside the gate. He experienced the exile that we deserved. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, in order to make us fit to be in God's presence. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So the gospel is our motivating factor for that. Being willing to experience the very reproach that Christ himself experienced for us. But there's another motivation. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. We thought Rome would last. And it did for a thousand years. But it was ransacked. Some people think the United States will last. It has for 242 years. But again... Here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. The city that we are citizens of. And here's the response. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices reveal the glory of that city. As we are a colony of that city. A city where the citizens are no longer enemies to the cross. They are the beneficiaries of the cross. A city where there is no more destruction but eternal life. A city where we are delivered from the God of our bellies, our appetites. We've been set free to worship the one who died on the cross for such as us. A city where there is no longer glorying in shame. But a city whose king took the shame in our place on the cross. A city where our minds are redeemed from earthly things. Where we now can set our mind on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Till then, we seek that city which is to come. We seek it as a colony. And one of the ways we do that is the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is essentially a foreshadowing of what we will do in full, unencumbered by sin, in that day. As we sit down at the Messianic banquet with the king of that city, the Lord Jesus Christ.